1: Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 197 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I can't work out whether the oversized look is brilliant and freeing or makes me look like a toddler.
2: Hmm.
1: A. <laughs> Thanks mate. I do like it, as do my boobs. Just swinging <laughs> about in the breeze. <laughs>
2: What's What oversized items
1: are you talking about? I bought a frock on eBay which is lovely and roomy and sort of you know a bit boho and I was like oh I enjoy this so then uh, I got a little bit obsessed at looking at sort of puff shoulder dresses and I got one uh, again on eBay because that's where I do my shopping and it is massive even though the size is not massive and I'm like do I like this or do I look like I'm having some sort of breakdown am I having some sort of breakdown? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe.
2: I think uh, oversized clothes do become more appealing with
1: age, shall we say. (laughs) Absolutely. As we were just discussing off air, I can't tell whether it's because I recently had a birthday or maybe 45 is just my cut off point for stuff and things. There are noises and creaks and and smells. (laughs) It's all gone wrong.
0: Speaking of which... I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and if anyone listening has any dental skills, please DM me. Could we tie a bit of string round it, and then round a door handle? (laughs) Just swum
2: the door. You know you can buy shit in boots, like DIY filling stuff. I mean, I know that's not what you require it for, but like, you literally can buy shit like that in in your average pharmacy these days. I mean, I made a mess of dyeing my own hair now and again. (laughs) I don't think dental work.
0: I would not try to fill... My own dental cavity.
3: <laughs> I, I,
2: I wouldn't.
0: I'm just a spinning chair now. I've got to boots. I, anything, anything to tear this tooth out of my head would be amazing. Oh, love. Oh.
2: And I'm Jen Jennifer and love is catching someone else's puke in your cupped hands.
1: That's how Gary proposed. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we had an incident on Saturday night. It was pretty pretty
1: bad the thing about cupped hands is there's not a lot of room in them no and no matter how hard you cup vomit is part liquid even if it's mainly fish fingers it is part liquid and it will (laughs) seep
2: oh it was not a nice evening at all at all did you have some in your hair the next day i did have some in my hair the next day i didn't have time to wash it out before i went to work so i just i I just went with (laughs) sick in my
1: hair I mean, congratulations, Jen. I know I've met her a few times and she's bloody lovely, but I feel like you've actually become a mum now. This is I it. I know, I know. As I
2: said to my mum, who was, I have to say, my mum was a fucking hero on Saturday night, as she always is, to be fair. She was, like, giving her a cuddle to get her to sleep when I went and soaked things in, in basins and, and whatnot. And I said to my mum as I went up, because it was Mother's Day on Sunday, happy fucking Mother's Day. And she said, in fairness... <laughs> This is very much what being a mum is about.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to get a lot more practice, Jen, if that's comforted. I don't know. <sighs> Can't wait. Later on, I chat fierce women, Victorian girl power, unscrupulous doctors and surprise wings with author Liz Hyder, whose new fiction, The Gifts, contains all of the above and more.
2: I talked to Areej Osman, Senior Placement Coordinator from Refugees at Home, about the practicalities of taking a displaced person into your home. And in
0: Jenny Off the Blocks, there's a shock retirement. Not yours? (gasps) Not yet. And in Rated or Dated, we wonder, what is a good price for a jousting (laughs) stick? As we watch 1997 cult classic, The Castle.
1: It's a real dilemma, isn't it? Because not many people want one, so they wouldn't think they'd be expensive. But not many people want one, therefore they can be pretty expensive.
2: It's a classic supply and demand conundrum, (laughs) isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: But first, trafficking, taxes and toxic behaviour. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting.
1: Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Refusing to call the people we disagree with Nazis forever and ever. Amen.
2: Oh, wow. Where to start? It's just another week on Twitter, right?
1: Indeed. And so to some entirely predictable, yet no less heartbreaking and belief in the goodness of humanity squashing news. There's no sweet for this sour, so I'm just going to spit it out. Trafficking gangs are waiting at the Polish border to abduct Ukrainian women and children. To sell them to brothels and pimps in Europe, possibly beyond. Dubious men walk through the rows of waiting women and offer them places to sleep. And the demand for Ukrainian girls as a search term is increasing on porn portals. God. Look, human trafficking happens in war zones. We know this. And so we knew it was 100% going to happen now. In fact, three weeks ago, Hannah was sat at my kitchen table and we talked about how this particular horror coming to light in this particular war was only a matter of time. How the chaos of war and fear and displacement allows a multitude of sins More than 3 million people have fled Ukraine since the Russian invasion in February, and women with nowhere to go are vulnerable to traffickers. It's sad, but not new, says Irene Herzl from the Counselling and Training Centre Against Human Trafficking and Sexual Exploitation in Switzerland. Pimps know exactly how to take advantage of the women's plight. Herzl, talking to German magazine Emma, also adds that on porn portals such as Pornhub or Ex-Hamster, I mean ex hamster oh <laughs> more and more videos are being searched for with the keyword war rapes in Ukraine. It's beyond appalling dregs of humanity. God. There is some hope, you'll be pleased to hear, Jen. Mm. International Justice Mission Romania, a charity which has been working on stopping cross-border trafficking in Romania and Eastern Europe for the last couple of years, is on the ground working to prevent trafficking via various methods, including partnering with local charities and agencies to coordinate safe transport from the border to local shelters and supporting refugees with safe passage on their onward journey, therefore reducing the risk of people accepting offers of transport by exploiters. They are IJMUK.org online and understandably hungry for cash, if you can spare any. They are also, sadly, warning that the worst of this is yet to come.
2: I, I don't... There's nothing I can add to that.
1: <laughs> there's no chatty banks no. to follow that story, is no, there? No, there
2: isn't. So Mick, do you know where your household income comes from?
1: What do you mean by that?
2: <laughs> like, Could you account for all of your revenue streams.
1: I I need more details.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What what about your shareholder dividends? Do you know where they're at?
1: Oh, I know exactly where they're at.
2: (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm being a little bit facetious here because I'm making an educated guess that you, like me, possibly don't have loads of money invested in shares. By
1: loads, do you mean any? (laughs) Because you would be correct.
2: Well... Imagine, though, being married to the child of a billionaire tech businessman and your spouse owning a 0.91% stake in a company which, orcs, still operates in Russia. That is awkward. It is, isn't it? Now, I fully believe Chancellor Rishi Sunak's assertion last week that he has, and I quote, absolutely no idea if his family is benefiting from said business in FOSIS's Russian operations. That is hard to say. Uh, but to say he has nothing to do with, and that's another quote, the company is kind of disingenuous if it is part of his family's assets. Even Carmela Soprano knew where the money came from, Jen. Quite. It also doesn't look great, does it? Not it's when you're taxpaying office. public. It's its pretty bad. Not when your taxpaying public are being told that they are financially fucked, thanks to Putin's proverbial dick swinging. And when you've delivered a spring statement the same week, which provides checks, notes, um... A VAT break if you want to install solar panels. (laughs) (laughs) That's helpful to the vast majority of people in the country, isn't it?
1: Solar panels, they're they're not cheap, are
2: they? They're not. I actually looked into this recently because I thought, you know, energy situation going on at the moment. Maybe my mum could get some solar panels. They cost about, I mean, we're talking thousands of pounds Mm. and the return, spoiler alert, It's not great in this country because the sun is not actually that strong. So he also announced a 5p cut in fuel duty, saving you approximately £3 every time you fill your petrol tank up. Oh, and a 1% tax cut, which kicks in in 2024. (laughs) Great. Uh Not really. The Institute for Fiscal Studies said that a middle-income earner on a salary of £27,500 a year can still expect to be £360 worse off this year as Brits are set to experience the biggest fall in living standards since the 1950s and inflation is set to hit a 40-year high of 8.7%.
1: But, Joan, at least we've got the Queen's Jubilee to keep us uplifted. I believe there's a new boat... Is there? I think there is. Cool.
2: Where to start, Mick? Well, since no increase in benefits were announced beyond an already planned three point one percent uplift, how about food? Let's look at some food price increases between September last year and March this year. That is six months for those of you who uh, can't do the maths there, quickly. Jen. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Pasta is up by 56%, milk is up by 19% and salad by 31%. Meanwhile, energy bills could reach £3,000 a year. And let's just swing by pregnant then screwed HQ for a minute to look at the findings of some new research they carried out with Grazia. 62% of the almost 27,000 respondents said that the cost of their childcare is now equal to or higher... Than their mortgage or rent. That's outrageous. And it goes up as well for single parents, doesn't it? Yep. So, Rishi, I don't want to go for the base, oh, you're rich, argument. Although, Rishi Rich does have quite a nice tabloid ring to it. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the, oh, you're rich, argument, it is divisive and it is reductive, I agree. So instead, I will quote friend of the podcast and shadow work and pension secretary, Jonathan Ashworth,
1: to ask, is that it? It's a piss poor budget, isn't it? And it's been quite the fall from grace for Dishy Rishy to to be divisive and reductive, Rishy Rich. And I guess, you know, we've said it before on the podcast, we'll say it again, no doubt. By not helping people, it is the poorest people in our society who are already struggling, who will find it almost impossible to get by. Jen, would you like some good news, mate? I really would. Yes, please. Okay, let's go to the Oscars 2022. I know. It sure packed a sucker punch. Sorry. Uh, so much to say, but this is the good news section, and it does feel like a certain something overshadowed what was all in all mm. a pretty classy history-making Academy Award ceremony. On which note, allow me to tip my hat to Coda, which nabbed three statues, including the one for Best Supporting Actor, taken by Troy Kotsur, making him only the second deaf performer to win an acting Oscar. Fittingly, Coates Coda co-star, oh, that's fun to say, Marley Matlin, oh, there's all the alliteration. Was the first <laughs> deaf performer to win an acting Oscar back in 1987 for *Children of a Lesser God*. And Coda bagging the Best Picture Oscar was a delight in itself, but made more joyous by the clear love between presenters Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli. I'll put the clip in this week's Bush Telegram because it's bloody lovely. At one point, Gaga just leans to Minnelli and just says, I got you. And Minnelli goes, I know. Thank you. And it is just so love filled. And there was more bigging each other up joy as Samuel L. Jackson received the Lifetime Achievement Award from his longtime pal Denzel Washington. And more! Best Supporting Actress winner Ariana DeBose made history as the first openly queer performer to win an acting Oscar for her portrayal of Rita in Steven Spielberg's rerun of West Side Story. She made one hell of a speech, quite rightly paying tribute to original Oscar winning Anita, Rita Moreno, and also dedicating her Oscar win to those who, quote, question their identity or find themselves living in the grey spaces. More props, this time to the glorious Billie Eilish and her brother, Phineas, it's all in capitals, do I have to shout it, for yeah. taking the best original song statue for Bond theme, No Time to Die. Well done to Jane Campion for becoming just the third woman to ever win Best Director, which is fucking outrageous. Yeah. Campion took it for the power of the dog and also, this time, managed to resist any urges to make Shite Hawk's comparisons with the Williams sisters in her speech, Thank Fuck. And finally, well done to Will Smith, who took Best Actor for his role as said Williams' sister's dad in King Richard. His gong makes him just the fifth black actor to win the award and the first in 16 years, which is fucking outrageous. If only people hadn't been so distracted.
2: More news in.
1: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week.
2: It's that time of the week where we ask the internet, are you the dickhead, as we pull up up in Tinseltown for some toxic masculinity.
1: That's so unspecific, Jen, because every week the internet goes, yeah, yeah, I am the dickhead.
2: (laughs) Uh, There's so much of it this week as well, so much of it anyway of course i'm talking about willard Carroll smith ii or as you may know him will smith the fresh prince or that actor who spent the last 15 years of his career literally embodying the expression oscar bait mm-hmm. what a shame then that the daft prick managed to overshadow his own best actor win by open hand slapping host chris rock why In what's become the traditional Oscars roast, the comedian joked about Smith's wife's shaved head, in the process making himself look like a right wally, and I don't use that word lightly. (laughs) You already know this because none of you live under rocks, but Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia, an autoimmune disorder that results in hair loss, and she looked pissed off, prompting her husband to storm on stage, slap rock and shout, Get my wife's name out of your fucking mouth! Twice. This was literally the point at which I realised it wasn't a setup.
1: Same. And I watched this a vast amount of time yesterday. And up until he is angry and Chris Rock is flustered, mm. then you were like, this could just be a stunt. Although I did see it pointed out on Twitter, like that neither of them need a publicity stunt. And a particularly one that doesn't make them look great. But yeah, it looks, because he walks over to Chris Rock still smiling. So he yeah. absolutely sucker slaps him. And he's like,
2: he's laughing until he looks at Jada and she isn't laughing.
1: Tip of the hearts to Jada Pinkett Smith here, who is very composed for someone who's just had something she doesn't like said about her in front of millions of people. She rolls her eyes. Whether he didn't hear it, whether he was just politely laughing and then the sound sort of hit his ear and he realised, or whether it's, this is funny, oh shit, she doesn't think it's funny, I better do something about it, in his brain. We'll never know. But there we go. Hmm. Was it a funny joke by Chris Rock? No. <laughs> no.
2: Was it unkind? Yes, in front of millions of people. Should we consider the fact that black women's hair is political? Yes. Mm-hmm. Should Will Smith be considered representative of all black men? No. Absolutely not. However, punching someone live, on stage or anywhere because they besmirched your good lady, well, it's a dick move at the best of times. But when you are a millionaire, award-winning actor with a platform, literally a platform (laughs) in this case, which he stood on later to collect the aforementioned award, it's also totally unnecessary. Why not take that opportunity to make the point that the jokes made at the expense of attendees are not hashtag kind?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Instead, and I actually think this might be worse than the act itself, to be honest, Smith used his platform to defend his own honour, apologising to the Academy and excusing his actions, which were carried out in protection, he said, of his wife. Love will make you do crazy things, he said, Uh. citing the defence of a large proportion of domestic abusers. To quote friend of the podcast, Kelly Wells, it is the fucking stalker's
1: charter. (laughs) it's the domestic violence handbook say yeah. you're doing it for law oh it makes me feel sick
2: yeah so let me get one thing straight we women do not need protection and it is damaging to men and women to uphold this narrative especially if in doing so you actively perpetuate mm. the bullshit notion that love somehow equates to violence a narrative actually used to justify killing us in our own homes yeah do i think will smith should be cancelled no, no. Do I think he or any of the other people with differing views to my own are Nazis?
1: No. (laughs) See, top of Bush Telegraph. No.
2: (laughs) Smith has subsequently apologised for his actions, including to Rock himself, which is great. But does he need to get a fucking grip?
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm going to add a little bit to sexism of the week, Mm. uh, which you have done beautifully. Thank you very much, Jen. But also, when I started watching the clip, the thing that immediately got my back up is the clip starts when Chris Rock is joking about Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz. And that joke is lazy and sexist because apparently Oscar-nominated Penelope Cruz doesn't have a name. She's just Javier Bardem's wife. I was already annoyed before what happened after that.
2: Yeah, no, you're right. It, it was like a really sexist joke. Oh, you better not win if she doesn't, because she'll be uh indoors, the old ball and chain. She'll be right pissed off, won't she? It's, yeah, yes.
1: yeah. You can't win if you win. But also, and we'll never know the answer to this, Jen. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna hazard a guess that hmm. Penelope Cruz didn't go home and go, "Why didn't you go up and punch him in the face?"
2: <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I'm joined by Arijj Osman, Senior Placement Coordinator at Refugees at Home. Hello, Arij. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me.
2: Listeners will likely have heard a bit about Refugees at Home over the last few weeks. You've been popping up in news stories all over the place. But I wondered if you could, first of all, explain to me and the listeners a little bit about what you guys actually do.
3: So we are refugees at home. We have been around for um, about six years. The scheme is set up to help asylum seekers and refugees from all over the globe um, who find themselves in the unfortunate situation of homelessness. And we, what we do is we offer them temporary placements with hosts who have spare rooms. Just as simple as that, very generous, very kind, no rent, no money exchange involved.
2: I imagine in the last few weeks you've seen a huge spike in people contacting you in the first few days after the government announced its homes for ukraine scheme apparently 100,000 people expressed an interest in it in in housing a refugee from ukraine and I personally think that it's not an undertaking that you know I, that should be taken lightly for the sake of everyone involved, including the people who are being housed as as much as the people who are housing them. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about what kind of key things people might need to consider before offering their homes to a refugee.
3: They need to consider that they're going to be welcoming strangers into their homes. So they should prepare just the feel that someone is going to stay in your home for some time and you don't know them. So I think just people should be um, a little bit more open and understanding that these people are going through difficult times, I mean, like a war. And the difference I think we are seeing with people who have come forward to house Ukrainians is the time scale of it. Because with other refugees, people can apply to host for a few nights or a week or a month. But for uh, people who are coming from Ukraine, I think it would be really good for the people to think about time commitments and that might be six months plus because most of them are families. They need to get children into schools. They need to settle. So yeah, I think helping a family require a lot more devotion and time commitment.
2: Because I was looking at some of the information on your website because there is a a lot of information on your website for people who are both looking for somewhere to be housed and for people who are looking to house someone and there's a lot of information there things that I hadn't really considered like for example it sounds like a stupid thing to say really but how vulnerable these people are so it's not appropriate for example to embark on you know romantic relationships with people or like intense friendships with people or things like that not that most people would obviously go about inviting someone into their home in order to start a romantic relationship with them but it's just the kind of thing that hadn't really occurred to me before I guess so there are a lot of things to think about in terms of their vulnerability right maybe you could explain a bit why those rules are in place
3: in our charity we just we ask hosts to be mindful about the guest situation and um, of the power dynamic of them being the host and offering all the space and the support that the guest needs and not to abuse that power so you would think of it as if you're you're lending a friend a hand and just helping them through these difficult times so, and we have some checks in place all the hosts who come through our charity they have to be home assessed by a professional home visitor who will have this conversation with them upfront, so they're ready.
2: So there are other things that people need to consider in terms of space, for example. What is a kind of appropriate amount of space to offer someone? Is it just a room? You know, can it be more than one
3: person in a room? You would think about it as if you're helping a friend in need. So if you have a separate room, a spare room, that you're happy to offer that'd be ideal but some people offer this sofa bed bit on the living room and that could be for a very short while like one night or two nights because it's inconvenient for, for for both of them but ideally if you have um, a separate room to offer and uh, you will share the kitchen you will share the other shared spaces in your house it's it's an act of kindness we're not asking people to go above and beyond what they can offer but uh, just to be mindful, if you have a separate bathroom or a separate room, that would be ideal for the guests.
2: So what about if you're in a sort of fortunate position where maybe you have a second home or or you have a home that you maybe you travel a lot for work and you're not in it that much? Would that be an appropriate space to offer someone or, or are you looking for people really who can be around a bit more? Because presumably these people need support. Is the expectation that you would support them in terms of, you know, I don't know, for example, applying for benefits or looking for schools? Or would there be someone separate maybe who would would help with that kind of support?
3: We have done this before where people offer their spare house or second house that they're not living in. We have to be very careful who to place there because we need to ensure that um, the house is being taken care of while the owner is not there. But also that whoever's going there are independent enough to take care of themselves as well. So that comes down to our matching um, as a placement coordinators. Of course, the need of guests varies between some people who have limited English. They would really welcome some support with filling forms and applying for benefits and all that. So again, we will try to match them with someone who has told us that they have some availability to help them emotionally or to help them with Filling forms or applying for jobs or all that. But answering your question, it is possible, but we will have to know that upfront so we can we can do um, a really good match. Also, I guess the thing to think
2: about is the the financial aspect of it because there are things like water bills, energy bills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the government's Homes for Ukraine scheme does give a little bit of money, three hundred and fifty pounds a month, up to six months, to help with those kind of costs but normally that wouldn't be the case, would it?
3: No, not really. We do expect hosts to provide food for the guests, especially if they're asylum seekers, because they're going to be destitute and have no money. If you're a refugee, you will have access to benefits and employment and all that, and you can take care of yourself. But if you're a if you're destitute and asylum seeker and you don't have any money, uh, we would expect the host to provide you with food, at least raw materials that you can cook for yourself, But yeah, uh, in terms of contributing to the bills and all that, we don't do it. Our scheme is just basically altruistic and based on kindness. People just want to help and they never ask us for money and we don't pay them anything. Uh, We do have a small bursary to support the placements, but yeah, it's an act of goodwill.
2: So what is the process for someone who wants to house a refugee. How can you guys help with that? I guess the first thing to do would be to contact you, but what about, are you providing help to match people if they sign up for the Homes for Ukraine scheme?
3: We're not yet part of the sponsorship scheme. Um, however, we continue receiving referrals for people from Ukraine who arrived here on family visa. Mm-hmm or who are referred to us by our trusted referrals who are going to take on the referral responsibility. We're not matching people with hosts on Home for Ukraine. We have no idea about how that's working.
2: I wondered if you had any thoughts on the government's Homes for Ukraine scheme. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's working well? Or do you think it's not been thought through very well?
3: I think it's very hard for me to comment on that only because I don't have all the information about the scheme and how is it going to work. So I'm not quite sure if there are um, safeguarding checks in place for the refugees or for the people who are offering to host um, the refugees. I'm not quite sure if that's in place. I would hope so.
2: So is the main thing that you would be concerned about, because I have seen this in news reports, the main thing that you would be concerned about is the safeguarding aspect of it and the checks and balances that are in place.
3: Yeah, absolutely, because we have been seeing um, lots of scam websites claiming to be offering help and support to refugees, but no one has checked that and, and we're not quite sure if they're legit. So I would be worried, yeah. I've read all sorts of
2: awful things about trafficking taking place, for example, on the borders of Ukraine, because there are a lot of children who perhaps don't have adults with them and things like that and and obviously you know we like to think not but there are people with nefarious intentions in the world so i suppose that would be a big concern right to make sure that people are not using the scheme effectively to to put people into modern slavery or or, or something awful like that
3: Absolutely, and um, it's really sad, but it's very true. So it's it's our job, all the people working in the, ch- in the charity sector, just to step up and, and try to, to do the right thing and help these people. It is worrying, it is sad, but it's important to remember the thousands of people who are coming forward and saying, I'm happy to help.
2: So the current situation in Ukraine has prompted a lot of interest in housing refugees that some people have said simply was not there previously i wondered what kind of rise you'd seen in interest in the refugees at home scheme and also why do you think more people are coming forward now is there an uncomfortable truth in that do you
3: think I'd agree. Yeah, I think so. I think because Ukraine is very close to home, people can imagine and see themselves in this situation. It it could very easily happen to them. But I think it's difficult to put yourself in someone's from Africa's shoes. It's very far away. Um, You don't visualize yourself in this situation. But for Ukraine, it's just right here. I think that have waken people up and prompted this response that we're seeing at the moment in terms of how different it is to the other crisis and how many people are coming forward to help. It's honestly very hard to keep up. We have about 10,000 host applications at the moment and I haven't looked at them all. But what I'm seeing is different area geographically so people from places that I have never heard of before coming forward and saying we can help and we want to help and Part of the problem is we have never operated in these places before and so we don't have the home visitors who who need to do the checks for that. So if you are a home visitor and you have any professional background in home assessment and you would like to help out and volunteer, please get in touch with us refugees at home.
2: What kind of experience would they need to have to do that?
3: Yeah, so many of our home visitors are social workers, district nurses, retired GPs. They have had some home assessment experience through their day job if you have that experience in place then do come forward yeah
2: because it is as you say it's close to home and people are like well that could be me and it's maybe harder for them for whatever reason to see people in Syria and think well that could be me even though there's not really any difference in terms of A, the outcomes, or B, the reasons why these people have become displaced. Do you think that there will be a turning point now in how we view these things? Do you think this kind of increased interest is is here to
3: stay? Yeah, sadly no, I don't think so. The border and Nationality bills yesterday passing in the Parliament is a good example of no shifts happening, unfortunately.
2: That is depressing to hear, but also it is... (laughs) fully what i expected to be the case so do you have anything that you would say to someone who has maybe suddenly decided that they feel more like they were taking a refugee but perhaps it hadn't occurred to them before is there anything you'd say to them about you know the the realities of of doing that
3: so i'll say well done this is a really good first step do it right do it through an organization or a charity who has been doing it for some time so they know what they're doing and they will be there to support you throughout the placement. So it's not not a matter of you being introduced to a person, a stranger, and they're going to stay with you and you have to take the responsibility for all their life. It's not that. You will be supported by the charity. You'll be supported by other people who are supporting the guests. It's really interesting to learn about new cultures, Make new friends and just do something good
2: if you have the space. So for anyone who wants to get involved, anyone who wants to offer a home to a refugee, anyone who wants to come forward and volunteer to do home visits for you or anyone who can't do either of those things but they'd like to give you some money, they can visit your website refugeesathome.org. And as I said, I've had a look myself. There is a wealth of information on next steps and the application process. So I recommend that if you're if you're thinking about doing something like this. Where can we follow Refugees at Home on social media, please, Arige?
3: We are on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. It's Refugees at Home. Arige, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a pleasure.
1: Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by award-winning storyteller and properly delightful human, Liz Hyder. Liz, hello. Hello. Oh, that properly delightful. Can I get a badge made with that on? She's already making demands. I might have to retract that <laughs> comment. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, OK, a badge, a T-shirt and a handbag. So, Liz, we chatted on the podcast back in October 2019. The Before times about your debut young adult novel Bearmouth, which was a massive success, bagging all sorts of accolades, congratulations,
4: thanks, yeah, that does feel like uh, about five hundred years ago now, yeah. yeah yeah,
1: were you surprised by Bear Mouth's success <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: Yes, um I should explain to people listening um so basically Bearmouth is a kind of dystopian thriller set in a in a working coal mine. And it's kind of an imagined coal mine, and I've been extra cruel, and my characters both live and work down there. Yeah, and it's written in a kind of dialect that's inspired by all sorts of different places, but is essentially made up. So it's set in a coal mine <laughs> in, in dialect written first person. So, yes, I was very surprised that I was <laughs> published, because <laughs> it is a weird, intense, dark little book. Yeah, and then I, I kind of sort of thought everyone would hate it, and they and they didn't it was my seventh book that I'd written I kept saying it was my sixth but I'd forgotten one (laughs) but my first one to get published and I think it's always really good to say that to kind of anyone else who's a sort of an aspiring writer out there like don't give up keep keep going keep getting better keep writing stuff and I just sort of I'd got to the point where I thought I'm never going to get published so I'm just going to write something that I really want to write so I wrote that (laughs) yeah and I wrote it from the heart and I wrote it because I was angry My best writing comes from a place of anger and frustration. I think that's why it it kind of ended up resonating with people, because it
1: is truly written from the heart. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) no, definitely. In that interview, you told me a brilliant slash horrific tale of Victorian surgery gone awry, something you discovered researching your also glorious new book for adults, but not in the erotic fiction or Mills and Boone sense, which is called The Gifts, a slice of magic realism and imagined history that takes inspiration from real life 19th century figures. Could you tell us a bit about The Gifts and how it came about, please?
4: Oh, yes. So The Gifts is a story predominantly about women and with women absolutely at its heart. And there are four main female characters in it. There's an artist, a botanist, a storyteller and an aspiring young kind of writer straight journalist. Their four stories interweave with that of a ruthlessly ambitious young surgeon in the capital. So that's kind of sort of the premise of it. But it opens with one of the characters, Etta, who is my botanist character, growing a pair of spectacular wings in a forest in Shropshire. And it's a visceral, kind of bloody experience. They rip from her shoulders. And then when rumours of sort of a fallen angel start to kind of circulate around the capital, the scene is set for a tale of danger and excitement and ambition and all sorts of things. I think it's quite pacey, a bit like a thriller. Sort of a historical thriller with a bit of a, I guess, magical realism twist.
1: Oh yeah, it's an absolute page turner. And exploitation and revolution were huge themes in Bearmouth and Liz, you're at it again. <laughs> I'm at it again.
4: I was thinking about this the other day. I think Women have been frustrated throughout history mm-hmm. because they can't be who they want to be. They can't reach their full potential. And I think that's changed now to a certain extent, but we're not there. We're not there in terms of equality. We're a long way off. And so I wanted to do something that kind of reflected that, but through a historical lens, really, and using women who... Couldn't go to university. Couldn't get kind of a, a, what we would now consider sort of a traditional education. They didn't have those opportunities open to them, and so I wanted to write about them and how how frustrating that must have been. And that was I took inspiration from real life figures, and then I made it into I made it into a story. <laughs> I done made it up then. <laughs> No one did grow wings in 1840. Just, just, just to say,
1: not that we know of, anyway. There we go. Maybe it's just not been discovered yet. They've just found endurance. Anything could happen. (laughs) (laughs) As you just said, the story is about extraordinary women, and not just because of the appearance of those fantastic wings. Each of your women—Etta, Natalia, Mary, and Annie—fights, really fights, to be seen as themselves and for themselves.
0: Yeah.
4: And I, I I think it was important to show that. And also that they're from different backgrounds as well. That class is also an issue in the book that, you know, Mary sort of, who is my my, you know, aspiring journalist character. She is from a sort of fairly comfortable middle class background. And then she slips down to sort of a much more impoverished lifestyle. And I wanted to show how easy that was. There's no security net. There's no social net. There's nothing like that. Natalia, who's my storyteller, is from a sort of a very rural um, upbringing, a very rural environment, very much kind of working class. And then Etta, who's my botanist, who is inspired by a real life botanist, Mary McGee. She is from a very wealthy background, but her father was a plantation owner and her mother was an enslaved woman who, who was freed. And so that's a kind of a complicated set up that in some senses, you know, she's she's certainly privileged in terms of financially, but she's not privileged in terms of how she is perceived by society. So they're all rallying against something. They're all they've all got something to kind of try and prove to themselves as well as to try and prove to sort of wider society that they are they are important and that they have value and that they have so much to offer and that it's very frustrating.
1: Oh absolutely and the women's adversary and in Annie's case husband the bad guy of the piece if you will is as is so very common in real life a massively entitled man so you mentioned him earlier tell us a bit more about ruthless surgeon edward meek and the real life inspiration behind him
4: edward's really interesting some people have really really hated him i'm kind of quite fond of him in a way because i think he's got a really strong moral compass but the needle in it is bent I think that's the thing. He knows he knows that what he's doing is wrong. He knows that the way that he treats a woman with wings who comes into his his life, the, the, the way that he treats her, puts her, he imprisons her, basically, and isn't quite sure what to do with her. It's a bit like the kind of the butterfly catching and then trying to pin the butterfly, kill the butterfly, pin it to try and preserve that beauty. There's There's that sort of divide between scientific achievement and wanting to understand how things work and therefore you've got to take them apart, but also a sense of compassion and understanding that, you know, that is a living creature, magnified hugely when that living creature is a, a human being. Ed was kind of quite a complex character, but he was inspired by quite a range of different people, actually. So John Hunter, who is, I think, you know much more associated with the Georgian era, who's a really fascinating guy, and there's a brilliant book called The Knife Man by Wendy... Oh, my God, what is Wendy's surname? Wendy Moore, I think it is. But yeah, the Knife Man by Wendy Moore um, is brilliant. Hunter was a polymath, basically. So he was a brilliant surgeon, and the Hunterian Museum is named after him. And there's also another Hunterian Museum named after his brother, William. John's fascinating. His house, just off Leicester Square, was used as the inspiration for Jekyll and Hyde, because mm. the front of the house was very welcoming to sort of society where he rose in society and became very, you know, very well off and very well established. And the back of the house was where they'd shipped the bodies in for dissection
1: mm-hmm.
4: you know I love that kind of the contrast between the front and the back and that Jekyll and Hyde element and I wanted to bring that out with Edward but there's a Victorian surgeon called Astley Cooper who was there's no way of saying who was an arrogant shit <laughs> <With Astley Cooper. laughs> certainly in his youth he was very I mean he was very very clever very very gifted in lots of ways but massively entitled and arrogant I found him really fascinating and as he kind of as his career progressed he actually ended up becoming physician to Queen Victoria so he's really interesting his whole kind of path and that sort of kind of ruthless ambition is really fascinating so yeah Ashley Cooper a bit and Henry Klein who taught Cooper is really interesting so those sort of three were kind of the main inspirations and then I'm gonna sound like a wanker now and Macbeth <laughs> and Macbeth was a oh, big influence but I, I've, I, you know, I studied Macbeth at GCSE and um, and I still liked it, <laughs> despite that. Despite <laughs> the, like, the best efforts of Heathcote School in Chinkford, I loved it as a play. I still love it. And I find that story so fascinating, the kind of how ambition can tear you apart. And at what point do you stop? At what point do you say, this is too much? This is too far? Or can you stop? Like once you're sort of on that snowballing yeah. sense, like, can you stop? And you know it's wrong. But where do you draw the line? I find that really fascinating. And so yeah. Macbeth as well as <laughs> real life surgeons fed into fed into Edward. And I stole his name from a grave in, in Ludlow where I live, St. Leonard's Churchyard. It's brilliant for names. Mary Ward is from there as well. I'm very lazy. I just I just they're all by the path because I can't be bothered to <laughs> Yeah, that'll do. That's contemporaneous, that'll do. I'll nick that name. But I like it is actually a really useful thing. So yeah, if you're ever writing historical fiction graveyards are great to go nick nicknames and they can't sue you (laughs) incredible
1: tip there for writing so i described you at the top as properly delightful but i've got to say that there's a nasty element to liz listeners because in the descriptions of what edward does to these women they are written with quite a lot of relish you like the gory stuff don't you
4: maybe a little bit (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah i mean uh, yeah I like the light and I like the dark you you can't have one without the other it's the sort of yin yang element isn't it really I found it really upsetting to write Mm. see this does make me sound like a wanker I found it I found my own characters in my head (laughs) so upsetting but I think you have to you have to live those characters you have to kind of really sort of step into their shoes I suppose and you know my background is quite drama y sort of theatery, and I, and what well, I'm not I don't I don't go and look for the pair of shoes that Annie would wear and then put them on and then be like and now I'm Annie it's not <laughs> you know it's not stanislavski in method acting or anything but it is slightly like method writing i suppose i have to kind of really inhabit those characters and so you live through their highs and their lows and that's and the
1: lows are, are low and that's really upsetting i was really sad about a lot of dogs um, if i'm honest with you <laughs> I am much more sort of sentimental about animals than I am about humans which is I think a flaw in my character but there we go it's honest
4: I think it's really common the amount of people that have now said to me like oh there's 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 a scene early on and this is not a spoiler where Edward Edward kills a dog and it's really it is really gruesome and it is really brutal and I wanted to put it in because he doesn't need to he's already done that experiment before so he knows that it works and so there is a streak of cruelty in him and sort of it's that power element of I'm going to do it because I can not because I'm going to learn anything from it I've already learned what I can learn from Mm -hmm. that process and that sort of streak of, of exploitation and cruelty I wanted to show really early on you know how easily can you tip that into something that is even more cruel even even nastier but that that seed is already kind of sown I guess really in the pursuit of scientific knowledge that's what, what justifies it and that element as well of using a belief system to justify really terrible actions I find a really sort of interesting thing whether that kind of belief system is religious or political or you know wherever it kind of comes from or in the pursuit of science you know as it is partly with, with, with Edward I find that really fascinating doing really terrible things knowing they're terrible but doing them thinking that they're being justified by something that you believe
1: yep and obviously he thinks he has been bestowed the gifts i'm not going to spoiler it but bestowed certain gifts from god because you know if you need any justification just tell people god's talking to you well done edward let's talk about stories i would like to like natalia in in the book is a storyteller and that means that there are certain chapters where she is telling a story and you've invented stories for her to tell and they're all absolutely gorgeous little parables and sort of morality tales and just fantasies they're amazing have you always been a storyteller liz
4: I suppose so. I mean, my whole family are sort of storytellers. Like, any chance when the Hyder family or the Hyder clan are gathered, someone will be standing up because there's never enough chairs and that person will inevitably start recounting some kind of tale, probably one that we've all heard before, and it will change every time it's told and there'll be groans and, you know. But, yeah, I think I think the Hyder, the Hyder clan are all definitely sort of storytellers. My, my mum, particularly, I think, as well. It's always stories about oh you know great Uncle Jack and Uncle Will who was her uncle was very naughty and I I never <laughs> met Uncle Will he died before I was born but he was really mischievous and he once I love this so much I think it's such a brilliant ingenious thing to make up on the spot he and my mum were walking along and they were going to um, a shop that was near them where they lived in Leightonstone two nuns came out of the shop dressed in the full the full garb the full regalia and my mum said oh who are they and he said oh they're the people who put the prices up in the shop <laughs> the next time you go in <laughs> have you ever noticed that your, that your favorite sweets have gone up in price they're the people who do it so my mum was quite little at the time and she believed this for <laughs> some time basically nuns were the people who changed the prices of the shops uh yeah so we're all a family of storytellers I guess I've got that as a sort of background I love books, and I love reading, and I love storytelling in all its shapes and forms. I love TV, I love film, I love music, I love, you know, pretty much any, any kind of art form, and I think they're all storytelling, really.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I am slightly obsessed with storytelling, and I think of myself more as a storyteller than a writer in a way.
1: For me, it's about the story I want to tell. They're so important at bringing people together, at creating community, at creating like legends and legacy and shared experiences. Yeah, I think it's the way that we make sense
4: of the world. I think it's the way that, yeah, we make sense of the world through, through stories and through storytelling and whatever shape or form that, that might take. But I think it, it is something that's kind of fundamentally within us. So I know like Desmond Morris talks about like the artistic ape, that that's kind of the thing that marks us out as different. But I actually think it, and that's absolutely true. And I think it's a brilliant book, highly recommend, do read it. But I think also we are the storytelling ape. And I think that's the thing that Marks to say out, that it's it's not just art, it's art in different forms, and that includes storytelling.
1: Let's talk about art in a different form then. So the film rights for Bearmouth Mouth got snapped up before it had even hit bookshops. Where are we up to? How's that going? Oh, I don't know what I can say about this at the moment. Um, there's a script
4: uh, written by a fantastic screenwriter called Susan E Connelly, who is brilliant, there is a director attached. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Um, and they're going out, yeah, to financiers at the moment to try and get it funded. That is very exciting. It is very exciting. I mean, I kind of always think, you know, having sort of worked at, in at the BBC for a bit and stuff, and I know how hard it is to get films actually off the ground, and things just get stuck in development forever, or they just don't happen. So, yeah, we'll we'll see. I'd be over the moon if it happened because I think it's a really challenging book to film it's a challenging book to adapt for the screen and that's really exciting i'm very much on the periphery of it i didn't want to kind of be too involved in it because it's not my medium and it's not my my vision really so i'm really excited to yeah see what vision they have for it
1: so the gifts is is much more epic and much more immediately you're reading it thinking this would be a good film or tv series so has there been any noise around that I couldn't possibly say. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, Liz the gifts is out now, published by Manila and available in all good bookshops, particularly the ones with dedicated window displays. Hell yeah! <laughs> what is next, please,
4: Hyder? My next one is speaking of film, set in 1896 in Bristol, and it is set in that real um, Venn diagram overlap of really, really early film pioneers and Victorian magicians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested in early film. And the more I found out about it, the more I realized how women played a really fundamental role in it early on. And I think, British film industry is not commonly known about. There've been some fantastic, fantastic researchers working in that area for a long time. And there are a lot of really early film geeks who are amazingly interesting and knowledgeable about it. But I don't think it's kind of commonly known about. I don't think the names are well known. I think if you say Georges Méliès, people will probably have heard of Méliès and the Lumière Mm -hmm. brothers, Mm -hmm. but they won't have heard of sort of the British equivalents like Robert W. Paul or G. Smith, like people don't know about them. And so that's a really fascinating thing but for me it's also about the the wives of those men loads of them were performers and so when you look at how early films were made there isn't really a director and a producer and a set designer and everyone did a kind of a bit of everything I wanted to explore that gap really like who are these women and you know Robert Paul was an electrical engineer so there's no way that he would have necessarily know how to work with actors or how to direct them or how to light them even or how to make sure that people were in the right place at the right time that was not necessarily his strength or his skill set so who would it have fallen to and then you're like well clearly this is, it's really interesting and and there's so little left behind about those women really so that's great for me as a storyteller because it's like oh there's a little gap I can uh, (laughs) step into, so I do actually have a film, my filmmaker is female um, and there wasn't a Bristol film school in
1: 1896
4: but you know, I'm making it up Storyteller, (laughs) exactly making it up as
1: a storyteller (laughs) Liz, where can people find you, please, on the, uh, on the internet? On internet, On internet, on the World Wide Web. On the World
4: Wide Web, I'm at London Bessie. Um, so Bessie is my family nickname, and my family all call me Bessie, and everyone else calls me Liz, which is a bit weird and slightly strange now I can't think of it, but it's just how it is. <laughs> and I've kept London Bessie because I love it, even though I live in Shropshire and I've lived here for 12 years. A little bit of me will always be in London, I guess, really. So yeah, at
1: London Bessie on Twitter, Twitter. And InstaTwat as well. <laughs> InstaTwat is excellent. Um, <laughs> yes, that one. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to use that going forward because it's very accurate. Help yourself. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry if I waffled. I probably
4: did. I've sort of had that not quite enough coffee. Also, probably too much. I'm <laughs> writing that.
1: It's a real fine balance, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've stepped over that line. Yes. <laughs>
2: You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny Off the Blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off the Blocks, that time of the week where we are quite literally agog as we discuss all the comings and goings in women's sport. And of course, I'm talking about the shock retirement of world number one, Ashley Barty, from professional tennis. In really unexpected news, the 25 year old announced last week that she would hang up her racket to chase other dreams. In a post on social media, Barty said of her retirement, I'm so grateful for everything tennis has given me, adding, however, I know in my heart for me as a person, this is right. To us, it's going to feel quite out of the blue because after all, she has literally just won the Australian Open two months ago, her third Grand Slam victory, and in doing so, she became the first home champion at the tournament in 44 years. She's also been the world number one for 114 consecutive weeks since winning the French Open in 2019. And only Steffi Graf, Serena Williams and Martina Navratilova have occupied the top spot in the rankings for longer periods of time. However, Barty's actually been thinking about this for a while, she said, and her perspective changed after winning Wimbledon last year, the pinnacle of her ambitions in the sport. Where do you go from there? After she went on to win the Australian Open six months later, she said that seemed like the perfect way to celebrate her career. Barty said that that perspective shift made her realise that her happiness wasn't dependent on results anymore, that she no longer has the physical drive or the emotional want to continue at the top of her game. I have nothing more to give, she said. Asked about what she might do next, and Simona Halep has mused, maybe time to embark on a career in golf. Barty said, wait and see. She didn't rule out trying another sport, though she said she wanted to give back to the community and particularly to help provide more fellow Indigenous Australians with opportunities to get into sport. So, to be honest, I am absolutely stunned by this announcement because at 25 she could keep going for a very long time but I think it's bold and really quite brave to move on to something else and good for her for having the self-awareness to know that it doesn't make her happy anymore and I'm really excited to see what she goes on to achieve after her tennis career. Okay so moving on you might remember hearing me talk on the podcast for the last couple of weeks about the mess that England cricket are currently in or rather have been in so in our final match of the group stage of the Cricket World Cup, we played Bangladesh and they completely fell apart. England won by 100 runs. It's quite the turnaround from the recent run of results we've had. and The good news is that it means we are through to the semi-finals and the defending champions, that's us, will play South Africa on Thursday, which is tomorrow if you're listening on Wednesday. Come on England, etc, etc. I also spoke last week about the Women's Six Nations, which started last Saturday. As I predicted, England absolutely spanked Scotland 57-5, Wales beat Ireland 27-19, and France beat Italy 39-6. This week, France will play Ireland, Wales will play Scotland, and on Sunday, Italy will play England. Remember that you can watch all of this on the BBC. A final piece of good news for you, depending on your perspective, I guess, as in, like, were you one of the lucky organised ones? Or, well, perhaps you were like me and you snoozed and, indeed, you lost. Still, good news for women's sport. This week, ticketing opened for the Women's Euros, which will be played right here in England. According to UEFA, demand was, and I quote, extremely high. And England v. Norway, England v. Northern Ireland and Belgium v. Iceland, as well as the final, which will be held at Wembley Stadium, are all sold out. There may be some more tickets released at L.A. State, according to UEFA, so there might yet be everything to play for. Reading between the lines, I'd say that means they will decide at a later date if they should bother opening another tier or not, but who knows? Keep your eyes peeled on their Twitter feed if you want to know more. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport.
1: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film did we watch this week that made me really consider becoming a subscriber to The Trading Post?
0: (laughs) This week, we watched The Castle, released in cinemas in Australia in April 1997, and to the rest of the world over the next 25 years via borrowed (laughs) videos and DVDs. And while it can be regularly seen on Aussie telly today, The Castle remains a cult classic, outside of its home country. It's one of a number of self-deprecating and genuinely feel-good comedies to emerge from Australia in the 90s, including Strictly Ballroom, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Muriel's Wedding, and The Dish, which was made by the same team behind the castle. And while I'm not saying that all of those films are brilliant, although I am saying that Muriel's Wedding is... Yay! <laughs> Given all have an avid fan base, it says something that The Castle is often voted the best Australian movie ever made by fans and critics, both inside and outside of Australia. Not bad for a film that was made for around $400,000 in 10 and a half days.
1: And can I just add, not bad for a film that was made for around $400,000 and looks like it was made for around (laughs) $400,000.
0: Absolutely that. The castle's dialogue has permeated Aussie culture with how's the serenity, (laughs) it's the vibe, and that's going straight to the pool room, thoroughly well quoted. I find it a good gauge of whether someone is a fan of the castle, if they correct me when I say ergonometric chair. (laughs) And to prove that some opportunities are too good to miss... And in the same way that Paul McGann can't go abroad without someone popping up to ask him, have you gone on holiday by mistake? (laughs) When the property that doubled as the family's holiday home went up for sale, the estate agent reported that he was inundated with people calling to inquire about the price and then responding tell him he's dreaming. (laughs) I would so do that. I would so do that.
1: Also, I think it's fair to say, out of most places of work, annoying an estate agent, no one's got much sympathy for
0: that, right? (laughs) No, exactly that. Written by four veterans of the satirical sketch programme, The Late Show, Rob Sitch, Santo Soloro, Tom Gleisner and Jane Kennedy, and directed by Sitch, the film is presented as the story of Melbourne teenager Dale Kerrigan. In actuality, it's about his dad, tow truck driver, greyhound racer, and proud family man, Daryl Kerrigan, played by Michael Caton, who used to be in the Sullivans. Do you remember the Sullivans, mate?
1: Vaguely. I was trying to place him because he's got a face that I was like, I recognise that face. And I recognise the name, Michael Caton. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm still like, I'm not sure where I've seen him as much as my brain thinks I've seen him. The Sullivans
0: was like what we got before we had neighbours. And then when it was like sons
1: and daughters in
0: the Sullivans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The family's name, fun fact, was chosen because there was an existing company called Kerrigan Towing (laughs) who were happy to lend the production their vans. Filling out the family are mum and sentient branch of hobbycraft, Sal. Sons are Stephen Wayne, although the latter is in prison, and daughter Tracy, played by Sophie Lee, who you might recognise from Muriel's wedding, who is newly married to Con, a wonderfully earnest Eric Banner in his first film. (laughs) Daryl is a very easily pleased man, and within the parameters of that, Everything is going swimmingly for the Kerrigans until a letter arrives saying that their house and those of their immediate neighbours are being compulsorily purchased to make way for a distribution hub at the airport they live next to. Daryl is confident that with the help of the lawyer who failed to keep his son out of prison, (laughs) he can get the decision overturned. But Daryl is also confident that his wife would make nice mugs, so make of that what you will. (laughs) But a chance encounter on a cigarette break proves to be the shot in the arm his David versus Goliath campaign needs. Now, there's something else that I want to add before we get to the chit chat, and that is a bit of historical context. The Marbo case, which is referred to in the film, is real Mm -hmm. and happened in 1992, It sparked a national conversation about Aboriginal land rights, something that a sizable chunk of the Australian population was not on board with. Pauline Hanson's nationalist and racist One Nation Party was gaining ground. Now, I've told you this story before, Mickey, the first time I arrived in Australia, I saw a bill for uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and it said Hanson attacked by angry crowd. (laughs) And I thought the only Hanson I knew at that point Mm was those mm Bob people. And I thought, what's going on here? Turns out, not the same answer. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Anyway. I think they probably have been attacked by an angry crowd as well, though. They?
0: <laughs> I mean, they make me furious, but that's another matter. Anyway, by tying together the Kerrigan's land with their memories, it was a sincere and actually very successful attempt to put the case for Aboriginal land rights in a language that working class Australians would understand
1: there's a brilliant bit where daryl goes oh i'm starting to understand how the aborigines feel about the land and i went (laughs) and then i'm like oh no that's a really heartwarming and well thought through (laughs) comparison that he then goes on to make well done yeah
0: yeah there's a point at which he shouts the government needs to stop stealing people's land and it is that argument just laid out there which is you know
1: when we look at maybe the argument that crocodile dundee makes About (laughs) Aboriginal land. I think, I'm I'm putting myself out here, Hannah, but I think this one is much, much better.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, where to start? I mentioned With Nell and I at the top, and I think apart from With Nell and I, it must be the most quotable film in the world. It's absolutely full of just dream lines. I mean, I've got a few examples when he says, Dad describes fishing as 10% brains and 95% muscle. Which is really funny. Oh, and then he says, and, the, and the, there's an extra percentage after that as well. And so then he says, and the rest is just good luck or something. When Daryl's up in the roof and they're all shouting up at him and Dale comes in and says, Dad, I dug another hole and it's filling with walls." <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. But I think my favourite bit in it is Elaine, the next door neighbour, when they're having a meeting, a conf lab in his shed. And Daryl swears and then he apologises to Elaine and Elaine says, get your hand off it, Daryl. It's <laughs> just beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. You thought you'd seen this before, but you hadn't. Oh, Am Just right? before
1: we get on to that, you mentioned With Nail and I There as a really quotable film, which obviously it is. And actually watching The Castle, the thing that struck me, and I said out loud to myself, to the television, in case they could hear me, it's almost a forerunner to Anchorman. Anchorman is much, much glossier, obviously, but it is that quotable lines and sort of bants in the not-cunty sense of the word, and it's glorious in that way, and it sort of makes sense that it was written by alumni from The Late Show. Well, yeah. you know, obviously Saturday Night Live has a lot to do with Anchorman. Mm. And yeah, I just thought, oh, it's that quotable, you go away and you want to you wanna get involved with the characters, you want to say the lines again. So yeah, I also thought it was a similar vibe to With Nail and Anchorman for me.
0: And the delivery is extraordinary. I told my brother I'd been watching this because I bought the castle back with me from Australia and had a video of it, a VHS of it. They got worn out because I'd lent it to so many people. And my brother was saying, when I told him I was watching it, he was like, his favourite line is when Eric Banner says, I can't tell you how disenchanted I am with the legal system. And it's not not funny. It's the delivery that is absolutely everything in that. It's that really, because he's an accountant, isn't he? So he's played as being pretty earnest and deadpan and boring. uh, But it's hilarious. It reminds me that when I spoke to Rosie Cavalieri, she said, you don't the best way to do comedy is just to play it like it's drama and then get people to laugh at that rather than try and play it like it's comedy. Absolutely. And the other bit that isn't a, a quote...
1: But it's definitely Eric Banner's character, Con being his earnest self, is he's very earnest about his kickboxing and when and they're he's doing so bad at it. when they're doing the kickboxing <laughs> practice when they're in yeah. Bonnie Doon and he just does a little kick and then this little pirouette, I nearly fell off the sofa laughing so hard, it was amazing. Disto Daryl's song about going to Bonnie Doon, which is very yeah. like the songs I sing around the house. It was just we're going to Bonnie Doon, we're going yeah. to Bonnie Doon It's <laughs> just amazing. And I don't know why it's so funny, but it's so beautifully funny.
0: There's a brilliant bit in it. And given, like I say, shot in 10 days, so how much time they had, 10 and a half days, because they also went to Canberra for half a day to get the pictures of them outside the, oh, the, the courthouse. High Court there. Mm. There's a bit where Eric Banner's doing that stuff where he's doing his pirouettes and spinning <laughs> around and Daryl says, look at the dogs, they love it. And then the dog just goes Ooh! like that and moves to the side. And, and it's, it's what what's really funny about that is is the knowledge that if that dog hadn't done it at that moment, they wouldn't have had time to stop and do it again. Yeah. So actually, it's actually incredibly good performance by an animal, well which, done, is, doggos. which is bonkers, yeah. Oh,
1: when they just let all the doggos out of the boat. <laughs> just... There's loads of bits that I absolutely lost my shit at. And I don't know why they're funny, but I think it's because it's so, so heartwarming, Hannah. There's yeah. not a malicious bone in this film's body, which is just, I think it's what we all need right now. It should be on prescription. It's so
0: lovely. Agreed. Daryl is, this is something my dad actually said when we I first made him watch it, was that the comparison to another head of a family in comedy that was that was going on at exactly the same time was Jim Royal
1: mm. mm-hmm.
0: and Jim Royal is relentlessly cynical and negative, so negative. and lazy and unenthusiastic and Daryl is just like light everything's brilliant he loves everyone you know everything is delightful and <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking when he goes what do you call
1: this love and she goes chicken and he goes oh but what have you done to it seasoning <laughs> a man's joy in seasoning.
0: <laughs> yeah, and a man's joy in his wife. Yes. And I think that there is an element of that self-deprecating Australian humour. They know, you know, what they are, but it's such a loving portrayal of working class Australians. Mm. It comes from a a really good place and it's actually incredibly well done. There's a, a scene where Daryl's watching the telly with Tracy and there are girls on the telly and he's like, oh, they haven't got very nice hair. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing when I could actually just quote it in its entirety. Tracy's a a
1: hairdresser, which
0: she's incredibly proud of. And he says, why don't you just ring them up and tell them that you could do better hair? And it's that brilliant (laughs) thing. I know so many working class kids that have been in a really similar situation with their parents where they're like, that's not enough. It's not how it works. (laughs) You know, and your parents are like, but you're really clever. Just bring up just bring up the times and ask him if you can have a job. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. I love
1: that he's trying to get her to, like he's threatening to send in photos for her. I'm just going to send in some photos. And then he does that really sweet, like parental thing of teasing her going, I'm going to send in the one of you when you were two. And they have that like, like oh dad, don't yeah. you dare kind of thing. But also he's like praising her hairdressing and she is at this point sporting a hairdo that we last saw on Catherine O'Hara in
0: Waiting for yeah. Government. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which also didn't get an international release. Maybe, it it's, maybe it's the fringes fault. Know. But he's the same with Dennis. Like he just keeps repeatedly saying to Dennis, come on, mate, you can do this. Dennis is like, it's, I can't. This is not my Dennis area being law.
1: the solicitor who, you know, it's just a vibe. It's just a vibe about the constitution. It made me think of Frayed as well, I've got to say. Like I think because Sarah Kendall has really captured that working class Australia And the love and the family that comes with being in those kind
0: of communities. Like I say, if you look at those other films, I'm not not a huge fan of, of Priscilla or Strictly Ballroom. I do love Muriel's Wedding and I like The Dish as well. that It has like a a dark underbelly to it, especially Muriel's wedding. I mean, Mm. Muriel's wedding, terrible things happen at Muriel's wedding all the time.
1: But at the same time, someone does also accidentally unzip a beanbag thinking it's her pants. (laughs) (laughs) And that is
0: one of the funniest things I've ever seen. 20 seconds later, Rachel Griffiths is paralysed. It's, it's yeah. so, oh, no, yeah. so wildly up and down. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this has the underlying sadness. Their eldest son, you know, he is in jail. Mm. And yeah, it is genuinely really, really feel good.
1: One of my favourite bits is because Dale is narrating this and he narrates it pretty comprehensively throughout the film there's quite a lot of narration at the top as everyone's introduced and no one else does much talking but as the film progresses he still chips in with lots of narration and one of my favorite things that he does and that I actually wish people did on the radio when they're news broadcasting is that he'll go and dad said this and then literally daryl will say exactly what dale's just narrated and I think that would be great on the news like if they went a spokesperson said this is outrageous and they cut to the spokesperson going this is outrageous. It just absolutely tickled me every time that kind of doubling down and repetition and yeah. Steve's
0: an ideas man. He is an ideas man. Yeah it's lovely and then you get that little bit at the end where it explains what happened next including Coco had a son called Son of Coco.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Also the ideas man thing by the way, he comes up with some inventions that are in play today. (laughs) I mean I don't know
0: why a bike helmet with a brake light on the back wouldn't work. It does,
1: you can get them. Oh, can you? Yeah, yeah. I said to Gary, I was like, you can get bike helmets with brake lights on the back. And he's like, yeah, totally. And also that hose thing that's a brush that you can wash your car with. They exist. My
0: mum used to have one. Wow. He really is an ideas man. (laughs) He really is an ideas man. I feel the need to mention, Daryl does use one really offensive term in this. Yeah, and
1: because of the rest of the film, it really, like, it almost jumps out a lot louder as well.
0: Yeah, I think because it was a word that Daryl would have used. Whether or not that would stand up as a defence now, I don't know. It's worth pointing out, it's a racial slur. It's like the other word that gets used a lot in 90s comedy
1: and into the 2000s is, I'll spell it, R-E-T-A-R-D. And it just felt like people said that, and now people know not to say that. And maybe there's an element of that with the word that Daryl uses, certainly in Australia, but no, it's still, it's out of order.
0: Yeah. Do we talk about the women? So this Sal Tracy, obviously. Elaine doesn't get much to do except deliver that amazing line. Get your head <laughs> up, it, <Darryl. laughs> But I think they're pretty well served by this. By the by the plot in it.
1: Yeah. The key person is Daryl, and it doesn't make any bones about that. But you know, he takes advice as much from his wife and daughter as he does from his sons he takes their lead on stuff he wants to know he wants to please his wife he very much wants to sal to be as happy as sal can be and yeah. he clearly is like still absolutely besotted and vice versa he loves his daughter and he's fiercely proud of her education and yeah, yeah. I, you know i think i know i've just said all that through the lens of a man but i think the women of very very well served yeah I have no complaints for me here
0: also it's just got so many and I say this as someone who grew up working class like you did like the Kerrigans albeit not in Australia there are so many small touches that you recognize like for example that mug that she buys him for Father's Day my granddad had <laughs> one of those and I think my brother has it with pens in it on a desk yeah. somewhere just because my granddad didn't have that much stuff and he had a huge family, so we all just took what you know. That's a thing that was in granddad's house. You've got some shit like that. That's just yes. something that was in my granddad's house or my grandma's house. I've got whatever. a I've got yeah. a
1: small brass pixie for similar reasons. But yeah, there's there's that lovely bit as well that really struck home of when Con and Tracy have been on their honeymoon and they bring back souvenirs, and I'm like, that's what you do. You would go yeah. like on holiday, and we'd always bring back my grandma and granddad a plate of wherever we've been, like you know Tunisia with camels drawn on it or whatever. And it really. It really made me think of that. And also of something my <laughs> my cousin said about my goddaughter, Nick, when she was younger. She'd been given some money to go into town. And basically she just came back with loads of presents for people. Like she'd had two quid, but she bought like a little ball. She's like, and
0: Andrea was like, it's like she'd gone on holiday. She'd just got into yeah. St. Helens. <laughs> One of my aunties went to um, Lurd's a couple of years ago. Lurd's, <laughs> You sound like you're from Hull. Lurd's, <laughs> Lourdes. Lourdes. And she brought back some souvenirs for her grandchildren. And me and another auntie were talking to, to one of them. I said to him, what did your nan bring you back from your holiday? And he said, some sort of necklace, <laughs> which was a <the> rosary thing <laughs> right? And then he said, and I don't even like Jesus.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Someone had bought my grandma. My grandma was bedridden from when I was three. She had uh, rheumatoid arthritis and couldn't walk anymore. And someone had, and she's very religious, someone had bought a back a Virgin Mary shaped plastic bottle filled with holy water, right? That grandma would get us to do, draw the cross on her head and bless her. And that was fine. And obviously, after a while, that ran out. And so we used to just fill it up from the tap and keep blessing her, bless her. You're going to go to hell, Mickey. I'm a terrible, terrible human.
0: one more thing i'm going to say before we get to rated or dated that if people haven't seen the castle I i would say that they should but the dish is also really really worth a look did get an international release so it is easier to find
1: although the castle's on youtube for free
0: yeah exactly Uh, Basically because nobody owns the rights to it because nobody cares because it was just a really low budget Australian film that took the world by storm slowly over 25 years.
1: (laughs) That's my plan, Hannah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The dish is about about the moonwalk and about a small town in Australia that had a really big dish and they were going to be used to bounce the television signal of the men on the moon across the world. And they had some problems. It's really again thoroughly thoroughly charming mickey the castle rated or dated rated yeah agreed absolutely rated and the point you made about it not looking that great when it was first made actually works to its advantage here doesn't it because yeah it hasn't aged in that sense at all what are we watching next week it is jen's pick Not mine, but I can see from the schedule, because,
1: yeah, I mean, we don't always sound it, but we are total professional listeners, that we are going to be watching Chasing
0: Amy. Blimey. Uh Uh-huh. Should we say say dated now already (laughs) be done with that? Just keep your powder dated, dated.
3: (laughs) Standard Issue for all women.